Good afternoon, everyone. It is Sunday, September the 20th, 2020. It is currently 3.29 p.m. Central Time, and I'm back here at Victory Baptist Church. Yes, I did a, a number of hours of live broadcasting earlier this morning. Then, obviously, we did the Sunday School Hour, the Morning Worship Hour, went home, grabbed some food, and then turned around and drove right back out here to the church. So I'm sitting here in the back of the sanctuary and well, I have I have Bible dictionaries, notebooks all over the place. I was working on I, I was working on a lesson for the VBC Bible Institute. Uh, we we are taking a journey through the entire Bible. <laughs> yes, it's going to take like twenty years because I I go slow and I I try to go as in depth as possible. I thought it was I when I originally started, I'm like we'll take a journey through the Bible. It'll only take a few years, and yeah, it's we're we're in Genesis six at this point. Uh, we're going to be in Genesis 6, you know, 100 years from now, which remember that 100 years from now, just just remember that because that's 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 going to fit with what we're getting, getting ready to talk about. But um, we're in Genesis 6 and we've kind of finished up Genesis 6 and I'm kind of ready to move into Genesis 7. And then I started thinking, wait a minute, I think there's a hermeneutical principle here that we can use. So what what I'm going to do is at some point, maybe I'll get to it this afternoon. Maybe this evening, I'm gonna, we're gonna do a lesson for the VBC Bible Institute where we go to Ezekiel 40, where you have, what, eight chapters about this temple and all of these measurements. I mean, it's, it's a complicated section of scripture, very controversial, very difficult. And there's a lot of different approaches people take to it. And one approach is, is that Ezekiel 40, I think to 48, is that that's not a literal temple. Even though it's giving all these measurements and all these descriptions, it's all spiritual and it should be interpreted spiritual. And so I started thinking about that. I'm like, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. Um, In Genesis, we have not a lengthy description, but we have a description of the building of the ark with all of these measurements. Do we take that literal or do we think that's figurative? Well, you start thinking about it. Adam is treated as a literal person in the New Testament right? His actions are treated as literal. Noah is treated as a literal person. Um, So then all of a sudden, do the measurements become magically not literal and they become figurative and we have to try to figure out what they mean? When you jump over to the book of Exodus, when you have the building of the tabernacle, right? Well, it gives all these descriptions and measurements. Well, how do we understand? We understand those to be literal, that the tabernacle was a, a, a literal tent that was built. When you get to the building of the temple, and the descriptions of that, that's all those measurements are seen as literal. So why do we get to Ezekiel and go, no, no, not literal. So I was going to try to bring all of this together. And I'm going to try to do that and, and kind of a way to use some of the things we're learning in Genesis, because Genesis is kind of the foundational book in the Bible that really lays the foundation. And in many ways, it lays the foundation of the hermeneutic that we need to use to interpret the rest of the Bible. The hermeneutical principles we start utilizing in Genesis have to be utilized as we move through on. Now, I do understand there's different literary styles and different literary types, which can account for some different approaches to how we interpret it. But I think it's going to be, I'm going to try to put it all together and hopefully it'll be beneficial. But so while I was sitting there trying to do that and trying to work all that, I got all these notebooks and and Bibles and I was looking up cross-referencing and all of a sudden I get a notification on my iPad that reads, new blood, computer brains, and frozen heads. 
how billionaires will live forever. And I was like, okay, okay. I know I should not become distracted, but that got my attention. So I pushed everything aside and I'm like, okay, I got to look at this. And once I started looking at it, I'm like, okay, if, I, if I've got to look at it, then the listeners of the Theology Central podcast, hey, you, you've got to listen to it as well, all right? You, you, I think we should talk about this, all right? So let's think about this, all right? So first, here's the headline again. New blood, computer brains, and frozen heads. All right, that sounds all crazy, something that could be in a sci-fi movie, something that could make for a good novel, could make for a good movie, maybe even for a good TV show. But what caught my attention was the next line. How billionaires will live forever. How billionaires will live forever, almost as if it's, it's going to happen. It's not, this is not pie in the sky. This is not crazy talk. That almost as if how they're going to accomplish it, that that some point a billionaire is going to figure out how to accomplish the ability to live forever. Now, there have been lots of discussions about the seeking out some form of immortality in all kinds of writings and all kinds of cultures. We, we could talk about it. This desire to, to experience some form of immortality, to live forever, to maintain uh, some level of youth, right? So nobody likes, and I, I think everyone can relate to this, nobody likes to look in the mirror. Nobody likes to look in the mirror as you're getting older and going, oh man, starting to lose my hair. You know, that's not good. My hair is thinning. Ooh, look at your face. My face looks, and you look at an old photograph of yourself and you're like, man, if I could go back, you know, maybe when you were 20, 21, 18, 17, you looked at yourself and you weren't happy with yourself. You were discontent and felt, well, wish you could look better and you felt awkward and you, you didn't have any confidence. And then when you get older, you're like, oh, I wish I could go back to what I looked like when I was 17, 18, 19, 20. I wish I could go back to that period of time, but it's, it's over. It's gone. And, but I think, um, as you get, so at, when you're younger, you look at yourself and you're filled with maybe self-doubt, a lack of confidence, uh, and at, you feel a, a sense of inadequacy, uh, and, and, and you want to improve it, you want to change it, whatever the case may be. And then as you get older, when you look in the mirror and you see the wrinkles, maybe the losing of the hair, whatever the case may be, putting on a few pounds, whatever the case may be, you see that, that physical change. You can feel it and you can see it. And I think it may lead to a little bit of a feel, maybe a little bit of self doubt. It may be, it may be make you feel a little inadequate. It may, may, may I can't, you know, everyone probably approaches it different. Maybe as a man, it makes you feel less than a man, whatever the case may be. But I think as you get older, one emotion or one thing that begins to bounce around in your mind and inside of you is the impending doom that you are fast approaching called death. In other words, when you see that, it's not like, oh, I wish, maybe there's a little bit of, I wish I could be younger, but you know that train is gone. You're not catching that train. That train's moved on. That ship has sailed. And it's more like a reality. I, I know I can't go back. Maybe I wish I could go back, but it's, it's you look kind of like, you can look to the left and go, I wish I could go back. But then you also turn your head and look to the right and you see it coming. Like now you can see it. It's like when I was, when I was young, um, I lived in Buffalo Gap, Texas. Yeah, Buffalo Gap, Texas. 
And there's a reason why uh, the, the hills around Buffalo Gap, Texas, uh, Native Americans had uh, uh, herds of buffalo and then they would run those buffalo off those hills to crash down to the bottom and they could, ki- they could kill some off that way. So uh, Buffalo Gap is kind of the, the, this little bitty town of like a population 200 people uh, in between these hills in West Texas. It, it was it was really a cool place to grow up. It really was. And um, there was there was a lot of there was a lot of uh, cool things about about growing up there. there. There was there was a lot of just neat things about growing up there. And um, as, as, I, as I grew up there and as as you get older, sometimes there's a, a, a longing, a wish that you could that I could go back to those days that I wish I could go back to those days. Um, but I also remember fondly that right there near my house, like where my house was in Buffalo Gap, there was a street. There was this old, older house that was, had been there for I don't know, probably since the 1800s, who knows. Um, and on that street, at one point, there had been a, a, a shootout <laughs> because uh, Buffalo Gap was trying to become the county seat of, of Taylor County. And, uh, and people in Abilene was trying to become the county seat. And there was this big battle and there was a shootout and there's lots of history in Buffalo Gap. But uh, uh, so there was this older house. So but if you go around that older house, right behind it was the railroad tracks. And as I was growing up in Buffalo Gap, we would spend hours playing on those on those train tracks, hours after hours, running up and down those train tracks. We would hop trains. Um, and then try to jump off the trains. That didn't always work out really good. Uh, I, I can tell you some crazy stories about that. Um, sometimes they would have these train cars to the side of the tracks that were there for whatever reason. We would play in them. But a lot of time on the train tracks. Got to know what the, when you, know, you saw the red light or the green light, what that meant. you know. But I can remember one time we were out just walking down the train tracks. There was a group of us. We were just walking down the train tracks. And um, we weren't paying any attention and all of a sudden, I don't remember, I don't know if it was me, I don't know if it was my friend, but we kind of stopped and like, wait, what's that? And all of a sudden we realized, we turned around and there was a train come bearing down on us. I mean, it was right there and we took off running and we happened to be in a situation where we're kind of like on a bridge so that we couldn't get off the track in any safe way. So we had to run across the bridge. Now, at that time, in my mind, it felt like, you know, that we were like three seconds away from death. In reality, I think we it probably wasn't even that close to us. And we just, you know, took off running a little bit and got, uh, it felt like we were going to die. It felt like it's here. It's over. This is the end of my life. I'm about to get killed by a train and, and railroad tracks near Buffalo Gap, Texas. What a way to end my life at the age of 15 or 16, 14, whatever I was at the time. In reality, it probably wasn't that close, but that that's what it feels like as you get older and you look in the mirror. It's like, oh, there it is. There's the train. And and it's not like we would run up and down those train tracks and sometimes never seen see a train coming. We kind of got an idea about what time it would show up at different times of the day and night. But uh, but that one time, all of a sudden, it just it was right there. And we looked and we had to move or it was going to run over us. Well, as you get older, you kind of you see the train like there. It's no longer you're just looking down the tracks. No, no. What's coming t- towards you is not not empty track. That's not what's laying in front of you. It's an oncoming train and it has the name death written on it. And nobody likes that. Nobody likes likes that. Nobody wants to, to acknowledge it. We, we don't we like to push down the fact that we're of our own mortality. We like to ignore it. We like to deny it. But it's coming. It's coming, and 
I think if I think maybe the rich. Um, I need to take a drink of water here. Thank you. Um, I think maybe this this demonstrates kind of the difference between maybe the wealthy and those who are not wealthy, the rich and the poor. If you're poor, I mean, there's what are you going to do? I mean, for so many for many poor people, even trying to get adequate health care, preventive health care, they may get emergency health care, but preventive health care. In many cases, they're not having those checkups and they're not taking the necessary things to try to prolong the quality of their life. Now, we could get into a theological argument. Can you prolong the length of your life or can can you only prolong the the quality of your life? That's getting into a whole theological uh, discussion in regards to a verse in Hebrews that we'll look at in a minute. But if you're poor, you really, you know, you can't be trying to come up with some experiments, paying all kinds of money for experiments in order to try to prolong your life and try to live forever. You, you can't. You, you don't have the money. You're just trying to get your you know, daily necessities. That's what you're trying to focus on. But if you're a billionaire, if you're a billionaire, not only are you, in a sense, living your best life, quote unquote, now, you're looking to how to prolong that, not just for five years, 10 years. You may be trying to prolong that forever. And you may have the ability to pursue it with all of your money. But everyone feels, as they get older, the reality, the, the reality that death is on its way. And, and I think everyone, I think everyone has different emotions when you feel that. Like nobody, like when you're young, you're just like, I'm going to live forever. And like death is, is something that, you know, it's almost like that's what, you know, people told me to scare me, but it doesn't really exist. It's like you don't really, and then when all of a sudden someone uh, of their age group, their peers die, dies in some tragic way, car accident, something happens. It's it's a major shock because death is they can't see it. It's too far away. But as you get older and you start seeing those changes, the reality becomes inevitable. So what? How do we approach it? What? What? How do we handle that? Well, we get into a whole emotional discussion. But let's look at how the wealthy billionaires, maybe some millionaires, are trying to well find a way to to find a new train track. A train track that doesn't have any train coming your way called death. It's just a track that you're on that seems to never end. Let's, let's, let's consider what is stated here. Here's the story. It comes from the dailystar.co.uk. Dailystar.co.uk. New blood, computer brains, and frozen heads. How billionaires will live forever. The super rich are already living the best the, uh, already living the best lives. Now they're trying to make those lives last forever with a wide array of weird and wonderful ideas from the fringes of science. Over the past year, the gap between the super rich and the rest of us has grown wider than ever before. But the difference between ordinary people and billionaires might be more than just money. Some high net worth individuals have been looking into extending their lives far beyond the 70 or 80 years most most of us might hope for. Now, when you're 20, 70 or 80 may feel like a thousand years away. When you become 50, mm, that's that that that's a somber thought. Now, 70 is what you're hoping for. That's 20 years. And then when you're 60, that's 10 years. 
And when you're 65, that's five years. When you become 69, that's a year. Like, how, how, how do you process that? I, I don't even know. I, I, I think every day, how am I going to process that? How am I going, how am I literally going to process that? Well, some, obviously, if you're a billionaire, you're not going to, they're, they're choosing not to process it. How, how can I extend that beyond 70 or 80? Now, obviously, if you're 69, you may make it to 80, you may make it to 90. But the point is, once you start getting into that 70 range, that the clock, the sand is almost out of the, the hourglass. One billionaire, the co-founder of PayPal, has invested in a number of a, a number of medical research startups, and a number. It, it's weird the way it's written. Has invested in number medical research startups, not in and not in a number of medical research startups, but that's okay. Looking, uh, looking at extent. This is so weird the way it's written. There's like words missing. Looking at extending life expectancy through his breakout labs fund. So the founder of PayPal, he's invested in a number of medical research startups looking to extend life expectancy, trying to figure out how to do so. One of the companies uh, that is really obsessed with this idea is Ambrosia. Now, I know Ambrosia, the band from the 60s, 70s, that they had some really big radio hits. Uh, well, we can get to a discussion about music. That's okay. Ambrosia. Um, I, I'm not standing in my uh, study where I could go uh, look for their albums. I know I have their albums, but that's a whole different discussion. Ambrosia is one of three outfits looking at experimental. Are you ready for this? <laughs> Ambrosia is one of three outfits looking at experimental vampire blood transfusions that put the blood of young people into the lens of, and this is the way the article actually describes it, into the lens of oldies. Oldies, that's old people, all right? So you take the blood of young people and it's, it's, it's a blood transfusion that puts the blood of young people into the lens of oldies. According to a commercial, uh, well, then they talk about the, the, They've been doing different trials and the cost of the trials. Um, let, let's let's kind of skip down a little bit. The technique has worked well in mice, although as yet there are no positive results from human trials. The U.S. Food and Drug Administration has issued a statement warning that the process has no proven clinical benefits and could be potentially harmful. But some people are willing to take the risk because they don't want to die at 70. They don't want to die at 75. They don't want to die at 80. They don't, they don't want to avoid the oncoming train. And, and I can understand that. Nobody wants, no, nobody's like, hey, here comes the train. Let me just get hit by it. If warm blood can't make you immortal, what about freezing it instead? The idea of chilling a body to postpone death until a future society has the technology to repair any injury or, or illness. Right. There's that, that idea of doing that has been around for you know a very long time. Uh, this idea has been around for years. I would say, uh, you know, 
I, I, I don't even know how long it's been around. It's been around, uh, shown up in lots of movies and, and literature, a lot of different ways. The, the story circulated that the Disney founder, Walt Disney, had been frozen shortly before his death from lung cancer in December 1966. There's no evidence that there's any truth to the rumor, but research has been uh, progressing since the early 60s. All right. So there's the idea. If we can't do the blood transfusion, let's freeze. Okay, you freeze the body and then some future society can unfreeze you and then you can, you know, be, well, you can, you can come back. But I mean, again, is is that, is that worth it? Like you come back, but everyone, you know, all your friends, they're all dead. Like, I I guess maybe if you can freeze a bunch of people with you, I I don't know. Um, The first living subject was frozen in 1967. No one has yet been revived. After the freezing, but several people have been frozen or had their heads removed and frozen over the years. So there's been a lot of people frozen. There's yet it, no one has been brought back, but there's been people who've attempted it. They want that chance of trying to live longer, extending. Maybe, maybe, maybe freezing yourself just for the chance of seeing the future. That that I could understand that a little bit. Maybe. I don't know. Can you imagine if you were frozen in 1967 and they unfroze you in 2020? You may say, wait, what? What's going wait, no, wait, I take it. I want a refund. I want a refund right now. Who I who wanted I know that the world is a mess. Freeze me again and wake me back up in 20 years. All right. Um Another individual, a colleague of the pay, of the PayPal founder, uh, and uh, and talk show host Larry King. There's a number of individuals they name here are all known to have signed up for freezing at the point of death. So there's a number of individuals who've signed up for for this uh, concept. Yeah, I would think though, the older you get, if you're frozen, right? If you're frozen, and then you're and then they they you know defrost you, <laughs> you're unfrozen, wouldn't, if you were at the point of death, are you going to be magically made better when they unfreeze you? Aren't you going to still have the same frailties, weakness, or disease that you went with, unless you're hoping that they now have the, the chance to cure it, so you would be unfrozen to then go through who knows what kind of medical treatment to try to save you? Like, I would think if that would really work, that you would have to be willing to sacrifice, like at the age of 40, at, like at your prime, you know, maybe... 30, I don't know when your physical prime is, 20, whatever it is, you would have to say, okay, right now, that's it. I'm going to sacrifice the present for the chance of a future. So freeze me right now at my physical prime. That's where when I am unfrozen, I'll be at my physical prime. Is is that worth the the the, the, the chance to do that? Like, I, it just makes no sense. Hey, I made it to 80. My body's falling apart. I'm deteriorating. I'm losing my mental faculties. Freeze me now. Well, when you wake up, aren't you going to have all of those same problems? That seems like a weird way of, of, of doing things. Um, based on the figures uh, from one foundation, one of the leading uh, providers, it would set you back and then they give you the different am- amounts that it would cost. Um, but that's, that's irrelevant here. Um, there's also the option to take your beloved companion with you into the future. Um, some uh, will charge you a large amount of money to, to freeze your, your dog or your cat or a pet bird. So you, you could wake up with your animal with you, I guess. Um, but if, if being frozen doesn't work and if you don't like the vampire transfusion, um, uh, why not get rid of the human body altogether? Like 
forget blood transfusion, forget freezing your body, forget, you know, freezing your head well, where it can be Im- implemented on a new body or, or, or a new something. How about just throw out the whole body? Just get rid of the entire body altogether. The idea of recording human personality into a computer and somehow turning that recording into a living being has been the stuff of science fiction for decades, but it's edging closer to science fact. Elon Musk's Neuralink device promises to monitor and record the entire output of a human brain. Two companies are working on turning this recording into a fully functional personality. So I guess they basically record your entire brain, and then I guess at some point it's put into something else, and then you can have some form of immortality. But are you – what is that? Um, it says here it's, – it's, it's, early, it's early days though. The process is described as 100% fatal, and we're a long way from turning ourselves into living computers, all right? Um, another person part, partnered with Musk to find – to, to uh, work on artificial intelligence research company, OpenAI. It's reportedly one of 25 people who have paid uh, some money to have their thoughts uploaded into a mainframe. So uh, that's Sam Altman, the dot-com billionaire. He's partnered with Musk, and I guess he and a number and 25 other people have paid to have their thoughts uploaded into a mainframe. So there are some people who have tried this. Pay the money, take my all my 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 brain and recorded and then uploaded into a mainframe. All these advances in biotechnology and robotics will remain expensive for a long time to come, so the only super rich can afford them. Um, uh, American futurologist uh, predicts uh, Paul Safo, S-A-F-F-O, he predicts that the multi-billionaire class could evolve into a separate species entirely. I sometimes wonder if the very rich can live on average 20 years longer than the poor, he says. That's 20 more years of earnings and savings. Think about wealth and power and the advantage that passes on to your children. Um, access to the finest foods and exercise equipment money can buy will definitely make anyone live a, longer, a, a, a little longer. But one of the bizarre ideas could just make a few eccentric bil- billionaires effectively immortal. And that is the entire story. Now, it's pretty interesting. There's a lot of different, a lot of different thoughts that come to my mind about this. It really does. It, it brings to me the the idea of of everyone longing to live forever, and all the different attempts. And and we could we could look at this as the difference between the rich and the poor. And and they kind of emphasize that a little bit. Um, this difference between the rich and the poor. I think sometimes. Um, I think sometimes that's looked at if I'm poor, then I should should despise the rich or hate the rich or envy the rich. And I, I think if 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 you want to be rich, uh, you can obviously start doing everything in your power to try to get there. Uh, a lot of some people get rich out of good fortune because someone, you know, they are they're given money from a family member. Something happens. Some, many get rich through obviously hours and hours and hours of work and sacrifice and dedication. And many to get rich, they've had to sacrifice a lot of the present. And I think that's what could motivate a a lot of the rich is they've had to sacrifice. So, I mean, when you're working, you know, 
14, 15, 16 hour days. You work, 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 work six, seven days a week. Your whole life is dedicated to work and making more money, work and making more money. You're sacrificing the present. And at some point you start realizing, look, I've gotten all this money. I've got the big house. I've got all of this wonderful stuff. I've been able to live a good life, but most of that life has been been used and spent in working to obtain all of this wealth that I'm ultimately going to leave for someone somewhere else after me. So you can understand why they would take some of that money and say, I'm going to try to prolong my life so I can enjoy it. I think, I think that may uh, motivate it. I think, but I think you could look into this difference between the poor and the rich, but that's, that's not really the way I want to look at it. I want to look at it, obviously, oh, can you imagine, a theological perspective because, well, this is the Theology Central podcast. The Bible makes it abundantly clear that we're going to die. Unless Christ returns, if not, we're, we're all going to face, you know, physical death. The Bible states this in a couple of ways. First, we have the, the amazing journal of King Solomon, the book of Ecclesiastes. If you don't understand the book of Ecclesiastes, it's basically his journal. Here's this king trying to figure out what life is all about. What's the purpose in life? What's the meaning of life? And he tries everything. He's trying to find the purpose. He's trying to find meaning. He looks to women, to song, to to wine, to education, and he tries everything. And over and over, he says, meaningless, 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 vanity, 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 vanity. Everything is vanity. And he has this, there's this very powerful section in Ecclesiastes in chapter three, where he says this, Ecclesiastes chapter three, starting in verse one, to everything, there is a season and a time to every purpose under the heaven, a time to be born and a time to die. There is a time to be born and there's going to be a time to die. That time is coming for you. That time is coming for me. And the time between birth and death, we don't know what, how long that time is going to be for you or how long it's going to be for me. We don't know. That is the present. We've got the time we're born. There's the past. We got the time that we're going to die. That's the future. And in between that is right here, right now. We have this very moment. And once this moment's gone, it's one, then we're another second, another minute, another hour, another day, another month, another year, closer to that time of death. But it's coming. And look what he, how he describes all of this. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant, a time to pluck up that which is planted. A time to kill, a time to heal, a time to break down, and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace, a time to refrain from embracing. A time to get and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to cast away. A time to rend and a time to sow. A time to keep silence and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time of war and a time of peace. What profit hath he that worketh in that in that wherein he laboreth? I have seen the travail which God hath given to the sons of men to be exercised in it. Now, it's a powerful passage because it acknowledges that, hey, there's life happens and there's a time for all of these different things. In other words, these are all different things that are going to be a part of human experience. But to what advantage is there in all of it? What does it avail? What, is, what do we accomplish? What do we really get from all of it? It's, it's, it's a very realistic approach that, hey, there's this time to born and a time to die, and all of these things are going to happen in between. But what, what does it really matter? What does it really, what do you really gain uh, from it? 
Yeah, and yeah, and, and I could continue reading. Um, I could just continue reading over and over of all the things. I could just continue through all of this, and it's just Solomon's just there. there it's almost very depressing at times reading Ecclesiastes. Now, when he finally gets to the end. When he finally gets to the end of Ecclesiastes, he finally gets his epiphany. He finally gets his revelation of, okay, the whole, the whole purpose of man is summed up in basically serve God, serve and obey God. It's found in God. Like if I'm looking for purpose and meaning under the sun, that's the key phrase in Ecclesiastes, I'm going to find meaningless in vanity. I'm going to find, I'm going to find birth, death, and a whole lot of stuff in between. I've got to get my eyes from under the sun, look above the sun to the creator. And it's in the, it's in the creator that I can find some purpose and meaning in this life. And then hopefully, ultimately, we believe it is in the creator that I find a way to experience eternal life. And we find that concept, obviously, in a couple of places in the New Testament. We find it Well, we could just read the words of Jesus in John chapter 11 when he's getting ready to raise Lazarus from the dead. Uh, He said, he reads, uh, he, Jesus states this, um, John chapter 11, verse 25, Jesus said unto her, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. Even though he were dead. Now he's getting ready to raise Lazarus from physical death, but he's ultimately pointing to another kind of, of, resurrection, another kind of life that you and I, we may physically die, but we can live forever. But the answer to that is not found in vampire blood or, you know, recording my brain and uploading it to the mainframe. It's not found in all of these other attempts. We can try all of those things, but physical death is coming. We can't escape it. But in in God, in the creator, in Christ Jesus, we can have eternal eternal life. That that death is not an oncoming train. It's just a shadow. It's just, a, in fact, for, for, for a Christian perspective, is death is not an oncoming train. It's a doorway that we step from this physical existence into a, 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 an eternal spiritual existence where we have a new body. There's no more pain, no more suffering, and no more death. You, you, we also get the same idea in uh, John chapter 3. I mean, we can all quote the verse, John chapter three, no reason to even look it up. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have, we all know, everlasting life. And then we have this uh, important uh, warning here. Let's see here. Uh, Hebrews 9, 27. And as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after that, the judgment. It's appointed unto man once to die, and after that, the judgment. Look, nobody likes to face the reality of their own mortality. Nobody does. Christians can can talk all they want about, hey, I'm ready to die. I'm ready to die. But there's also a part of us that we're not, you know, once once we die, we step into we step into the other side, per se. And yes, I believe by faith. And, and God, I believe in the triune God who sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die as a substitute sacrifice for my sins. I believe that. I'm trusting in that. 
But when I get ready to die, I am going to trust in that. But there's still going to be a little bit of that. Oh boy, this is it. This is it. If, if, if there's nothing on the other side, then this was it. This is, this is, it's over. It's gone. It's gone. And even if there is eternity on the other side, there's this life, it's still what we experience here is once we die, what we experience here is over and gone. And we, we step into a new form of existence, I guess is a good way to, to put it. So obviously on one side, instead of spending billions of dollars trying to prolong your life, you may want to spend, you know, maybe a little bit of that time to research what could happen when you die. What is waiting for you on the other side? I think that's an important question. Um, I think, though, it is a reminder of not wasting what we have now, right? We we, we don't want to waste what we have now. I mean, the, the clock is ticking. It's over. I mean, September 20th, 2020, it'll be over and hours, and it's gone. I won't ever get this day back, ever, ever. And then tomorrow will happen, and I won't get tomorrow back. It's, it's, I, 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 we need to be often reminded of how frail we are, and that death is coming. It is coming. And, and you can spend all the money to do whatever you want, but ultimately it's coming. Nobody's been able to cheat it yet, other than obviously you could speak of, you know, in, in scriptures, those who did not die and were taken uh, into heaven. We could talk Enoch. We, we could talk some different situations. Obviously, Jesus Christ physically died, but rose again and ascended to the right hand of the Father. And we hope for a time when Christ will come and we will be with that. But death is still a, a lingering reality that, yes, we may believe now as a Christian that it's simply a shadow. It's simply a doorway, and we're going to step through it. But it's still the end of this, of this existence. So there's a time to, to, to be born. There's a time to die. And what we're doing in the, in the middle right now, we, we can't waste what we have right now. We can't. And we have to process it. We have to process it in some way that, that there, there is, we are mortal. We are, we are physical beings who are going to die. And all we can do is be as ready for it as possible and not waste what we have. But our hope is for, is not for science to fix it. Our hope has to be, in, our, our hope is in, our assurance is in that there's something other than this physical existence. There's something else. There's something more. And that something else and something more gives me purpose and meaning in the present, but gives me hope for the future that that oncoming train, just a shadow. You know, to the valley of the shadow of death. It's just a, a, a shadow. A shadow is no longer reality. Here's my hand. And I can hold up my hand over, above this table. And there's the shadow of my hand. And guess what? That shadow doesn't do anything. Death now is just a shadow. We pass through that dark valley, that shadow. But we're, we're going to come out into the light of eternal glory in the presence of the creator where our purpose and meaning in this life was to be found. And that's where eternity, eternity is to be found. That's where our hope is. I don't just, just some thoughts uh, today, just some, some random thoughts. Just wanted to throw some of these ideas out there. Something to think about, something to meditate on. Just, just something, you know, we, we, ha- we, I, I want you to think about your own mortality. I want you to think about what you're doing in the present and not wasting it. But I, you know, ultimately, I want to point you to your only hope is in Jesus Christ. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The hope for eternal life is, in, is found in the creator and found in his son. It's, it's, it's found in the triune God. That, that's your only hope. Apart from that, you're left with 
oh, well, I guess you can come up with a lot of money and try to get a blood vampire blood transfusion from young people or you can uh, try to freeze, you know, yourself or you can try to upload your brain to the mainframe and hopefully, you know, it'll all work out for you. Or you can just say, it doesn't matter, I'm going to die and and just kind of go with that theory that this is it. And once it's over, it's over. I know more, but I, I think... I think it's easy when you're 20 to say that. I think when you're down to 20 or 30 years left, mm, that, that impending doom that this is it and that's all there is, mm, that seems like a dark place to be as well. So I don't know. Give me your thoughts. Newsif at yahoo.com. Newsif at yahoo.com. Newsif at yahoo.com. Just kind of like a, a stream of consciousness there. Obviously, I, you know, I, I, like I told you, I was do, working on something else, saw this and just wanted to share my thoughts no, no, I didn't have anything written down, no plans, no notes, no outline, <laughs> just just sharing my thoughts and trying to process it because I think it is something uh, to think about. And I think the Christian, uh, the Christian worldview, the Christian perspective does have obviously a lot to say about mortality, death, not wasting what we have now, our purpose. There's, it has a lot to say in regards to this subject. All right, I'll stop right there. I'll be ba- back live on the air here shortly. Everyone have a great day. God bless.